Welcome to The Advocate, the podcast that advocates for agriculture. I'm your host, Simon Pampana. With this series of podcasts, we'll be telling stories from the people of this ever-growing community, be it industry leaders or those just starting out, because each and every one of them shares a passion for ag and are doing their part in feeding a hungry planet. To the changemakers of tomorrow, we're so happy you're here. Your energy and enthusiasm is going to change the world. Your ideas and solutions are what we need to address all the problems we face in feeding a hungry planet. And it's not just me who believes in you. Youth Ag Summit alumna and change-making guru Kelly Hodgins agrees too. I'm really excited for you and I want you to hold on to all of that enthusiasm and that energy, but slow down for one second and ask a few questions before you get really started. Wait a minute, Kelly. That's a bit of a downer. A changemaker is a doer. Isn't it better just to get started and work it out along the way? <laughs> so it'll work out until a point that you might run into roadblocks. What I want to encourage people to do right now is to sort of identify where might some of your troubles come up and identify them early on so that you have a better chance of success for your project. Kelly has a very important message. For your project to succeed, you need careful planning and research. But this is often at odds with the excitement we feel when we first get an idea. We want to get started and bring it to life as quickly as possible. But we should all take a step back and learn from the mistakes of others. We can see examples like this happen all the time where we're so caught up in the solution and how perfect of a solution it is that we can't look past shortcomings or limitations or can't even imagine that it might have shortcomings or limitations. And we can see this over and over and over again. Look all over Kickstarter, look at any projects and look at their lifespan a year down the road. People come up with wonderful ideas to save our planet all the time. But not everyone will know how those ideas will impact the world they are meant to help. A great idea is like a domino. Once you drop it into the world, it will set a chain of events in motion. Sometimes that chain of events won't go very far. Six months and it's finished. And you'll need to start again with a new idea. But sometimes your idea will go further it will trigger a chain of events that will travel great distances, venture into areas that you didn't want it to go, and before you know it, wreak havoc. Problems do not exist in isolation. They exist as part of a system. Whether you like it or not, you cannot expect to solve a problem by focusing on just one aspect of it. To succeed, your solution must also work with all the businesses and industries and governments and communities that problem is connected to. Understanding all the interconnections a problem has in the world is called system mapping. It is a way of uncovering any chain of events that your solution could trigger and seeing where those dominoes would fall in theory before they happen in practice. 
And what we don't want is another generation of young leaders and change makers with the passion and the energy, the drive to really make change in a world that needs serious change, putting their energy into projects that are going to run at full tilt for six months or a year, and then hit a really big barrier or a number of small barriers that make that project fail. To get a better understanding of how system mapping works, we need some examples. We start in Montreal, Canada, with a story of how good intentions can go awry. The city of Montreal decided that they were going to ban disposable plastic cutlery from takeout restaurants and enforce that all restaurants instead use compostable cutlery. Seems like a really good solution, like seems like a good idea, good project. There's an identified problem, i.e. there's too much plastic going into landfills. And there's a great solution. Some technology exists now that we can make cutlery out of alternatives to plastic, which is completely compostable. We would expect then that doesn't cause harm to the environment. Until we dig a little bit deeper and we go a little bit further down this road and we start to recognize that in fact, when it comes down to it, the city of Montreal doesn't actually have the waste management infrastructure to deal with this compostable cutlery. So when people pick up their takeout food and they get their compostable cutlery, they feel really good, like their conscience is cleared that they're not polluting the environment with plastic. But the person eats their meal, they look around for what to do with this cutlery now, and there's nowhere to put it. They can put it in the garbage can, which will take it directly to the landfill, or they might consider putting it into their, perhaps their compost bin if they have one in their home. When they put it into that compost bin, it'll get picked up by the city's municipal composting trucks and be taken to the industrial composting facility, which doesn't actually have the capability in its design to be able to compost this variety of material. It turns out that not all compostable, or depending where you come from, compostable materials are the same. Vegetables and wood are both compostable. One will rot down over weeks, the other could take years. If the city doesn't have the facilities to deal with the type of compostable material used in disposable cutlery, then it effectively turns these knives and forks into garbage that will actually pollute the rest of the city's compost. The people that came up with the solution had great intentions. Swapping plastic cutlery with compostable cutlery sounds like a great idea, easy to understand and straightforward to implement. It's a situation changemakers often have to deal with. They're in love with this solution and their eyes are shining with the promise that this solution has and they don't want to be told that it won't work. This highlights the trap of a great idea. Just because it is elegant or exciting or easy to understand does not mean it will work. The only solutions that do work are the ones that address the problem in the context of a system. Solutions that focus on just one problem can in fact cause more problems. But by trying to understand the system, new ideas will present themselves. 
the deepest level issue is our reliance on takeout foods and having an easy and convenient way of consuming that food with disposable cutlery. That solution actually works counter to deeper level systems change that you want to see happen. And so what you're actually doing inadvertently in offering this fix is you're clearing their conscience and making them feel just fine about buying more takeout containers and cutlery, and in fact, deepening or exacerbating the problem. But if you're not aware of what the deepest level like root issue is of the problem, then that's where you have these unintended negative consequences. A much better solution would be to find a way to motivate the people of Montreal to bring their own utensils when buying takeout food. Yeah, you know, start packing your own forks and knives in your purse with you or something like that. And so if we really wanted to shift the system in a positive way forevermore, that's the problem that we need to change is that behaviour. To get another perspective on system mapping, we move from North America to Europe. I'm Maurizio, and I'm now 24 years old, and I just concluded my master's in plant sciences at Wageningen University and research in the Netherlands. Maurizio Junior Chiorazzi is an alumnus of the Youth Ag Summit in Brussels 2017 and a passionate believer in urban agriculture. His experience of system mapping came about while developing a project at university. It provides another important lesson for any changemaker. During my master's in plant sciences, I had the chance to participate in a great project which was trying to design a vertical farm in Amsterdam to convert an old prison complex in a green site for a new neighbourhood of the city. Our task was to take one of the towers of this old prison and to convert it into a vertical farm, into the green tower of the neighbourhood. Vertical, or indoor farming, holds a lot of promise for feeding a hungry planet. By growing food in a controlled environment, productivity can be increased using less water and, of course, space. Combined with the location of these farms in urban centres, fresh food can be made available to a local community while minimising the distance that food needs to travel. But indoor farming is a very technical venture. So Maurizio and his team had a real challenge retrofitting this technology to an existing building. The structure was really, really complicated. Of course, it, it was a prison, so you can imagine there were many, many different small rooms. So if we grew plants inside of this tower, the first problem we would face would for sure be the lack of natural light. We need to use LEDs to make plants grow in absence of light, and that's a huge energy consumption that you have to face. But at the same time, you are able to offer fresh produce to the people around, not just around the tower, but in Amsterdam in general, because with a tower like that, you can produce quite a lot of uh, plants. Since artificial lighting must be used to grow plants in this setting, there will necessarily be an increased cost of production in comparison with outdoor farming. But given that you are providing fresh fruit and vegetables to an urban community, it's still the sort of idea that you can fall in love with and not think there could be any other limitations. Except there are. The problem is that you are not able to grow any plant you like. You have a limited choice, which is limited by 
the technology, limited by the energy consumption that you face in indoor farming. What we were only able to grow in our design was only leafy green. So with the current constraints of what can be grown and the energy costs involved in production, what role could vertical farming play in feeding our urban centres? They often find this niche market because especially if you think of places like Europe, where traditional agriculture is already there, just some kilometres away from the city, you necessarily have to find ways to kind of enrich your activity. They are trying to grow these niche varieties or super greens, microgreens that they can sell to high level restaurants. But of course, if they decide to sell they produce to normal people, so to supermarkets and to make them available for everyone, of course the prices are going to be higher because the way they are produced is very expensive. Um, there is a lot of energy consumption behind it. It turns out the promise of vertical farming has serious limitations. This is a very different situation to the introduction of compostable cutlery in Montreal. That was a solution inadvertently causing a problem. Maurizio's vertical farm can better be described as a solution looking for a problem. It's true, it's kind of a solution looking for a problem. That's the perfect definition. Uh, at the current state, state of the art, of course. This is another situation that many changemakers will face. They have come up with a brilliant idea that may be years or decades away from maturity. Vertical farms can work, but they need time to develop. Maurizio understands this, and through system mapping, he and his team came to understand the total problem landscape vertical farming was trying to integrate itself into. It went far beyond just the technological problem of growing plants indoors under artificial lighting. When you talk about urban farming, there are many, many different factors to consider. It's not just about the, te the technology that you decide to use. It's also about considering the social, cultural, economical, commercial surroundings around the tower, around the vertical farm or indoor farm or whatever it is. Because you cannot just decide to make an indoor farm and that's it and place it somewhere and start selling your produce. You really need to make sure that the embedding of the neighborhood is involved in the project and is actually crucially important to make the project run properly and to make it also profitable. Even with all the limitations that vertical farms face, the one thing they have going for them is the ability to grow plants all year round. Seasonality is not an issue for the farmers. But what about the consumers? That's another hot topic because when we went out in, in the street in Amsterdam, because we went to network with restaurants, cafes, bars around the city to do a kind of a market study, and we found out that people care actually about seasonality. People want their seasonal food. Restaurants want their seasonal foods. And we were not expecting it because it's actually one of the main things that is advertised when urban farming is presented. The absence of seasonality because you're able to offer produce throughout the whole year. But our feeling was that it is not something people care that much about. If Maurizio had given up on urban farming, you couldn't have blamed him, considering all the setbacks he's encountered in designing a vertical farm for Amsterdam. But he hasn't given up. And what he's lost in doe-eyed idealism, he has gained in practical experience. 
Through all his hard work, Maurizio now understands the underlying system map urban farming occupies. He can leave his old thinking behind and embrace new ideas based on this deeper understanding, taking urban farming into new directions that will have a much greater chance of success. The added value of urban farming for me is really the way it can be used as a tool to bring people closer to agriculture, to the way food is produced. Because people do not know where their food is coming from. People don't know how plants are grown. Children don't know. And so if we use urban farming, indoor farming, vertical farming, there are many definitions of it, as a tool to bring people closer to agriculture, to show them how actually plants are grown, how the produce they eat every day is made, well, That's really smart, and that's really the power of urban farming for me. New message, 12.32 p.m. Hi there, it's Sukning Sam here from Cambodia. I am a delegate for the upcoming Yudak Summit in Brazil and a champion for delicious insect snacks to fight malnutrition in the developing world. Trust me, they taste great. You have been listening to The Advocate, brought to you by the team behind Bayer's Youth Act Summit. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Google Youth Act Summit and visit the website. Subscribe to our newsletter and be part of The Advocate community. Special thanks to Kelly and Maurizio for making times in their very busy schedules to talk to us. Please share this podcast with as many people as you can. And let us know what do you think of this episode. We are also interested in suggestions for any future episodes. Perhaps we could even tell your story. Get in touch with us and let us know. That's it. See you in Brazil, guys! (laughs) I'm not supposed to say that.